Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is your host, Josh Summers, and it is an honor and pleasure to have you here again with me today. Um, so in today's talk, uh, which I would say roughly looks at how practice uh, strengthens and nourishes wholesome qualities of our being. You could call them qualities of core self, such as confidence, connection, clarity, presence, compassion, all of those things I get into in the talk. Um, that practice roots us in these qualities to face ultimately the winds of life. And I speak about the, the worldly winds that are described in Buddhism within this talk. But I also include a, a rather uh, irreverent spiritual story in this talk. And as I said uh, to the group after the meditation uh, following this talk, the intention of that story uh, to me aligned with uh, a great work of fiction that I discovered when I was in university called The Decameron. Uh, this is a collection of shorts of, of tales, really, um, gathered together by the Italian author Giovanni Boccaccio, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. And these stories are set in the context of a group of women who lived in a secluded villa just outside Florence during the, uh, the Black Death or the Black Plague of the 14th century. And I remember reading these in college and, and um, just being really struck by how joyful and uplifting the humor and the kind of the life lessons of these stories were. And, um, and that, it's in that spirit that in the middle of our own ongoing epidemic of, um, or pandemic, I should say, of COVID, the ongoing conflagrations of war, uh, the anguish and, and, and just wretched tragedy we're all witnessing, that not to minimize any of that, but to use a story as a way to remind us of our work in our practice, the objectives, the aspirations of our practice, and to really nourish us to keep practicing. So that's the spirit of, of today's talk. And before I give it to you, I'll just say that um, Terry and I are warmly welcoming uh, new members to the Riverbird Sangha. This is our online practice community that weaves together three interrelated spiritual disciplines. The discipline of yin yoga, a very accessible, embodied form of um, yogic meditation. Um, we combine that with qigong, which is a more moving, active form of embodied awareness and energy cultivation. And we, we round the, the trinity out with seated meditation, specifically yin meditation, or a form of um, vipassana uh, awareness practice that involves or integrates many of the same functional approaches and ways of developing a practice creatively that we discover, that we learn about in yin yoga. So um, we just want to warmly welcome anyone. If you'd like to join and practice along, you can sign up on our website, uh, joshsummers.net forward slash sangha. There's a link for you in the show notes. Um, and we have a, in a growing library of recorded classes, tutorials. So if you're new, there's tutorials in there and workshops that um, will get you 
really well familiarized with the core elements of practice so that you can practice along with us um, it, with ease and, and um, hopefully depth, and you can develop and, and further refine your own practice independently. So if that's of interest, please do join us. It helps support our work, the work of the podcast, um, and it, it's a form of reciprocity whereby we both support each other's practice and, and, our, and in our growth. Um, both of us, Terry and I, receive lots of great questions, uh, points for clarification, and it's that conversation and dialogue that really helps us grow as teachers. So thank you. Thank you in advance. That was a little waggle from my dog, Ozzy. And now without further ado, I bring you today's talk, Rooted for Wind. So uh, to begin this evening's talk, I, um, I wanted to start with a, a kind of reflection slash insight that occurred to me about a week or two back. Um, this, this insight occurred to me while I was taking a, a walk with my dog early one morning. Um, and as you know, as many of you know, Terry and I live on a small property in, in Maine, which is fairly secluded. And we have a long dirt driveway that comes into our house from the road. And so when we leave our garage, um, we start out and uh, heading back towards the street, there's a, a bit of a high point in the driveway that then dips down. And that dip comes to a, a, a pretty small pond um, that a, a small brook runs through uh, that sort of runs through the whole town. And on this particular morning, as I came to the top of that hill on the, on the, on the, on the end of the driveway, just off the house, um, I could see that you know, from, from the position I was at, I could see half of the front of the pond and half of the pond was obscured by, by the trees that were, were blocking my vision from the back half. And in the front half of the pond that I could see, there was a very specific sort of uh, ripple of concentric uh, waves uh, moving from the back half of the pond. Um, and it was, the water in general was very still, but there was a very specific kind of wave pattern uh, emanating from the back half of the pond. And I couldn't see what the source of the back half of the pond that was causing the ripples was, but I, I knew that there was something there. And really in, in, a, in less than a second, I predicted that there were two mallard ducks swimming in the back half of the pond that I couldn't quite see yet. And sure enough, when I took about 10 more steps and, and advanced and took in, was able to take in more of the totality of the pond, I did see in a very uh, self-satisfied uh, way, I saw two little um, mallard ducks uh, swimming in a circle, doing kind of their, their uh, ritual of duck domesticity. And... Once I got over kind of my ornithological pride in, um, in, in recognizing this, I realized that um, this was in a way a kind of metaphor for practice or an analogy for practice in that, you know, I've been living for many years in an urban center, not really connected to much wildlife or nature. 
But in the last year, so going back to last spring, I just remember taking walks out with Terry and our dog and, and, and discovering in this pond, sometimes there'd be ducks, sometimes there'd be geese. Um, and sort of studying the behavior, I became more sensitive in a way and, and more receptive to noticing the presence of, um, of this life that would temporarily occupy the pond. Um, and, and to me, that just sort of captures the essence of, of the contemplative practice in a way, in that we, when we, when we practice, we're, we're formally carving out a period of time to study ourselves, to reflect on our own natural experience. And in, um, becoming more familiar with the nature of how we experience things, one of the things that starts to become clearer, I think, with practice is we start to see conditioned patterns of habit, conditioned patterns of reactivity or response. And in becoming more familiar with those patterns of habit and response or reactivity, um, we can more quickly recognize when there's a kind of disturbance in the energy of our being, i.e. subtle patterns of ripple, we can become more uh, quick to recognize when those patterns are developing. And uh, in the capturing, in the recognition of when a habitual pattern is emerging, we start to create, as the great psychologist Viktor Frankl would put it, we start to create the, the space between stimulus and response. And that allows for our agency, our, our presence and agency to step in and really, I think, create new habits of being that aren't predetermined by a reactive response. So in one way of describing that is like practice supports our ability to be grounded in qualities of being that um, uh, might be loosely categorized as qualities of being associated with our core self, our, our better self. And I put scare quotes around that word better, but a self that is primarily defined, I think, by the qualities that um, this psychological system that I mentioned from time to time uses. So uh, that system is called internal family systems. And internal family systems, um, as we've been exploring here and there, um, speaks about core self possessing uh, core qualities that conveniently all begin with the letter C. And they refer to them as the eight C's of core self. So these qualities include, include things like confidence. When you're grounded in core self, you feel confident and empowered. There's calmness. You're not you know, overwhelmed by reactivity. There's a, there's a calm presence to your connection. There's a creativity to core self. This where you're uh, able to see maybe novel solutions or um, novel ways of moving through something that's challenging. There's clarity, curiosity, courage, compassion, the theme that we've been exploring a lot, and connectedness. Um, and, and so that's one sort of one way of framing or thinking about the um, the role that our practice serves uh, serves for us in our life 
that our practice can nourish our capacity to stay rooted in these qualities when we experience agitations to the waves of our life or uh, winds in our life. Um, and, and they really help uh, keep us rooted and grounded uh, from tipping into habituated reactivity. When I first con uh, connected with that list of eight C's, the confidence, calm, creativity, clarity, curiosity, courage, compassion, and connectedness, um, my, it was my mentor, Jack Engler, who uh, shared this with me, and he, he made the connection. He said, you know, if you really think about it, those qualities are just a rewriting of the seven factors of awakening that are described in Buddhism that the Buddha referred to, like seven qualities of being that when nourished and when, when developed support the awakening of the heart. And just I'll come back to these, I'm sure, in future talks, but just <clears throat> to put them on the table, these seven, seven factors include mindfulness, so a, a, a rooted presence, a, a present momentness of, of, of connection, investigation, that's the curiosity, really curious and invest, you investigate the nature of your experience. Um, applying wise energy, so the, the energy we bring, the joy that comes from closely looking. And uh, that word itself is often associated uh, also with energetic uh, pleasure. Sometimes it's referred to as rapture, but a fullness of joy that comes when the mind is fully present to what is, um, even when there's like things that might normally trigger reactivity, but there can be a real powerful joy. Um, from mindfulness, investigation, energy, to joy, we can come to the, the, the fourth um, or the fifth factor of mind known as tranquility. That's, a, that's that clarity, that reflective clarity of, of, of being, which is associated with stillness and then equanimity. So I think there's a lot of overlap between between these lists, and it's um, it's sometimes helpful, I think, to reflect on uh, these lists from time to time. And I'll come back to them um, as my as as Jack Edgar would say to me. So that you, in reflecting on them, you can sort of evaluate: is one of these qualities maybe in need of a little bit more nourishment? Is one of these qualities in need of a little bit more attention to balance out? Um, the the feeling of rudeness, the experience of rudeness, rootedness in your practice. And I know that list may have sounded pretty abstract, um, but or both lists might sound a little abstract, but particularly maybe the seven factors of awakening might sound abstract. Um, but something that I have, um, I would say, derived faith from, which is in Buddhism, the word sada or faith or confidence, something I've developed confidence around is that when I have applied myself to the Dharma practice in particularly in retreat settings, that I can see in my own experience, how these factors just start to ripen and really ripen into you could call them spiritual superpowers that 
you know, in, 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 a, in, a, in a normal mode of being, when these factors are weak, we don't necessarily appreciate the potential within them. But I've seen in my own, my own experience, my own practice, and then sharing with others and talking to other folks that when these, when these factors take, can really develop in your being and become rooted in your being, um, even if it's a, a peer, just for a period of time, it can bring with the ripening with, or uh, as a consequence of the ripening, there can come a real faith that there's a kind of lawfulness to the practice that through applying the simple causal effect or the causal um, condition, I should say, the causal condition of just applying yourself to be present to bring mindfulness to your experience, to observe and study the nature of your experience, to align around that intentionality again and again and again without adding any other conditions into the mix. You know, like no cell phones, no special drinks or special magic teas or potions here or there, but just that utterly ordinary intention just to be present and to look to receive to explore to investigate that these factors do ripen and they can bring a tremendously new perspective on the potential of what it means to be human when you in a sense uh, and I, I, I'm, I'm speaking from my own practice. So I, I don't want to um, kind of generalize too much, but I know many of you have done your own version of deep practice. You, I don't think you'd be here if you weren't involved in some form of deep practice in your own life and have probably connected to these, you call them higher potentials of human existence. And that with them, when you start to taste that potential, when you taste the potential for awakening in your own life can also bring with it as positive as that is, it can paradoxically bring a kind of um, subtle or not so subtle form of what I might refer to as spiritual shame. When you fall short of living up to what you know is the potential of human, of human existence. And I, you know, in, in some ways, and, and this is part of the story I'll share tonight. Um, when one encounters these these more calm, connected, compassionate dimensions of being, particularly when these when the, those states are very strong, they almost inevitably come with a sense of, "I've arrived. This is it." <laughs> Wow, I can't believe I'm tasting this. This is this is it. This is this is this is the way. And you can think that there won't be any backtracking, backsliding, regression, habit patterns again. And I know this per like very well from just many years of of sort of swinging through 
deeper phases of practice, re-entering daily life and kind of feeling myself fall on my face or an egg splatter on my face through falling back as, as in a way. And so I guess what I, what I want to kind of point to is that there, we, it can be all too easy, I think, to internalize a, a kind of false narrative around practice. And that false narrative is that with more practice, when you become a better practitioner, you won't encounter the disharmony, the disturbances of habit pattern reactivity anymore. Or as, as often as kind of shared in, in, the, in the Dharma circles that I've been in, there's sort of a litmus test to, to figure out how profound and how secure your, your spiritual awakening is. And that is if you ever think that you have attained some form of awakening or some form of enlightenment, the, the litmus test is to go spend two days, two weeks, two months with your family of origin, if they're still alive. And I'm just going to plant a flag on that one. I have a, I have a family of origin story for you for next week. But, um, you know, it, again, when I first met uh, Jack Engler, this mentor that I mentioned regularly, um, I had come back from a long retreat in, in Myanmar uh, for about two months. And I was experiencing all sorts of disharmony in my re-entry from that retreat. And I, I felt I couldn't articulate the time because I couldn't even admit how painful it was, but I felt a lot of shame, tremendous shame for having so much struggle in re-entering. And he, I think, compassionately shared with me a tale from uh, a Zen retreat he had done with the American Zen master, Philip Kaplow Roshi, the, the abbot of the uh, San Francisco, uh, not the San Francisco, the, the Rochester Zen Center, where at the end of a, a retreat in Zen, they call Sashins, at the end of a Sashin, a student in the Q&A said, Roshi, this is to Philip Kaplow, Roshi, when, um, when one attains enlightenment, do one's problems go away? And his wise response was, no, 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 no. With awakening, you now have the light of awareness to now address your problems, your problems with the world. But again, it's all too easy to conclude that if there's difficulty, if there's disturbance, if there's disharmony, that our practice is backsliding, um, our practice is not going well, or that we ourselves as practitioners are inadequate or doing something wrong even. And this is um, this, this archetype of spiritual misunderstanding, uh, I think is perfectly captured in probably one of my favorite spiritual stories also from the Zen tradition. And it's a story about a, a, a young monk who had been living on an island hermitage in the middle of a lake 
for three years in, in solitude, practicing in a three-year retreat. And during this three-year hermitage time, each week uh, an attendant, uh, a, 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 little, a servant from the, from the main monastery would row out to the island, bringing the young monk food, whatever supplies, maybe wood and, and water, bringing whatever supplies the young monk needed for his um, time on retreat. And at the time that the story is told, um, the young monk is near completing his three-year retreat. And he wanted to express to his teacher, the abbot of the main monastery, he wanted to express uh, with deep respect um, what he felt like he had learned in his time of practice. So he requested of the attendant, he said, could you please, <clears throat> next time you come, could you please bring some parchment and some calligraphy pens and some ink and maybe some ribbon so I can write a poem for the abbot. So that request is made. Next week, the attendant returns, hands the young monk the requested supply, art supplies and rows away again. And so for that week, the young monk sort of continued his contemplative practice, reflecting, and through the depths of his meditation, composed a short poem. And the poem that he wrote in beautiful calligraphy on the scrolled paper read, the young conscientious monk, or the conscientious young monk, meditating three years alone, can no longer be moved by the four worldly winds. And that phrase, the four worldly winds, if you're not familiar with it, is one way of capturing or pointing to what in, in Buddha Dharma or Buddhism is referred to, sometimes called the eight worldly winds. And so these are, the, these are sort of conditions in the world that blow us around. Um, and they... The, the four pairs or the eight um, conditions are praise and blame. That's one pair. Success and failure. Pain and pleasure. And fame and disrepute. That when, you know, the way that I think the Buddha would speak to this, when the unawakened worldling, that's us before we awaken, the unawakened worldly, when the unawakened worldly experiences these, these, these worldly winds, they really cause a lot of agitation. They, the unawakened worldly gets blown around. So essentially, if we come back to the young monk's poem, he's saying, after meditating in the solitude for three years, the young monk is no longer moved by the, these winds that he, there's a, a a development or a realization or a rootedness in unshakable equanimity. So he wrote this beautiful poem, ties up the scroll with a beautiful red ribbon. And the next time the attendant comes, he hands the attendant the, the poem scroll and says, please deliver this to the abbot. Thank you. And in the following week, <clears throat> the young monk continues, you know, he's, if you've ever been on retreat yourself and you know, it's sort of the last day before you go home, you know, you can be, you can have 
very quiet days in the middle of the retreat. But then the day before you go home, the mind can get really active about what it's going to be like when you get back into your regular world. So the young monk in this way uh, was sort of, I would say, proliferating in fantasy about what the abbot's response might be. You know, he imagined the attendant handing the poem to the, to the abbot. He imagined the abbot reading it with consideration and great wisdom and great depth of being. He imagined that the poem might get framed and hung in a, in a prominent place in the monastery. He imagined that, well, surely the abbot would see to the depth of the young monk's realization that he might even appoint the young monk to be a, an abbot of his own monastery, in a, in a branch monastery of the, of the main monastery. All that was flying through his head. And then, of course, a week later, the attendant returns and hands a piece of paper that looks suspiciously familiar back to the young monk and says, from the abbot. So the young monk opens up the paper that he's received, and sure enough, it's his own poem being returned. But as he looks at the page of which he carefully and meticulously wrote in beautiful calligraphy his verse, he sees that his poem has been vandalized. That the, it, it seems that the abbot has taken a red ballpoint pen and vandalized it with crude commentary. There's a trigger warning there for you. There's crude commentary to follow. And after the first line of the poem, the conscientious young monk, after that first line, the, the, the abbot had carelessly written one word, fart. And after the second line, meditating three years alone, another, I'm trying to think, insulting word, fart can no longer be moved, fill in the blank, fart, by the four worldly winds with a fourth fart. Now, this was too much. Uh, the, the young monk immediately felt that the abbot was suffering from dementia or some sort of mental dis disorder. Um, and he, he said, take me to the abbot immediately. He just he sort of immediately packed up his things and, and, and was carried across the lake to go confront the abbot on his indelicate um, crudeness, um, which was, as, he, as the story is, goes, is, you know, he was, the young monk felt that the abbot was behaving more like a punk, not a monk. So he storms, after three years of being in solitude, he storms the abbot's um, audience room, you know, where the, the, the teacher meets with students and he throws his scroll down and he demands an explanation. He says, basically, how dare you? What the hell is going on? And the abbot, who's getting on in years and a little bit frail, slowly bends down, picks up the scroll, opens it up, clears his throat, and says, he just starts to read. The young conscientious monk, or the conscientious young monk, meditating three years alone, 
can no longer be moved by the four worldly winds. Then he puts the poem down. He says, how curious it is then, conscientious young monk, that all it took to blow you right across the lake was four little farts. So this is the way sometimes teachers, this is a story some, <laughs> to express sometimes how teachers have to disabuse compassionately, disabuse students of uh, assuming a kind of forever realization. <clears throat> and I, I share that because, I, again, I think it humorously captures a pattern that I know I'm familiar with, and many of you made, it's the, the pattern of our humanity. That as exalted as our mind and consciousness and heart may open to, you know, the exalted states of, of practice that we may open to, uh, it's just as the, the pond itself becomes more still with practice, we can become more sensitive to the disturbances, the disharmonies and the ripples that that flow through the pond. And if I were to kind of tie this all together, I might suggest we've been all winter emphasizing water, and now we're coming to spring emphasizing wood, but the, the reflectiveness of water allows us in a way to develop a rootedness in reflectiveness. So like, in our little pond, we have a tiny little island with a small outcrop of a tree. Um, so whatever is blowing around, whatever disturbances are on the water itself, that tree remains rooted. Um, and I'll, Terry and I know are going to continue to, to weave that, 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 that tree wood imagery into, into practice more. But just to say that uh, it's, it's normal, it's human, it's common to see these kinds of um, more painful disharmonies come, come into our experience as a result of the ongoing development of sensitivity that we cultivate in our practice. And I've been trying to speak to that in a variety of different ways for a few weeks now. And I've been trying to offer ways of, of compassionately connecting to these more challenging energies so that they themselves can become less frozen, less contracted, less isolated, in a way helping to integrate them into our being, to nourish a, a kind of caring presence with them so that we feel grounded in our core self, empowered with courage, compassion, connectedness, curiosity, clarity, and the other C's um, so that we can grow. We can take the challenge. We can take the difficult. We can take the, the painful disharmony and grow within it. But as I share that story, and maybe this is how I'll close tonight, now that's a very, you could say, one of the reasons I like it. It's one of the most irreverent spiritual stories I've ever heard. And I should say, I've only read this story. It's in a book. It's a collection of stories um, 
by a uh, a monk in in Australia named Ajahn Brahm. His book is called Who Ordered This Truckload of Dung? But it's a humorous story uh, that I think points to a, a truth in spiritual practice. But it's also a humorous story in a way that I, I, I hope brings some lightness to your practice tonight. And in that regard, I consider our, our time together where we're reflecting on practice and in a way sharing some stories about our practice together. I consider this time in, in the similar way to um, a collection of stories that I encountered when I was in college called the Decameron. And this is a collection of really zany, hilarious, wise stories written by um, the author Boccaccio, um, which looks at, it's sort of a series of stories told by a group of women who had secluded themselves, I think in the 16th century, my dates are a little bit, but the 15th, 16th century during the Black Plague. So like they're living through a, their own pandemic and they secluded and they passed their time telling stories to keep their own hearts alive and resilient. So even though that story I shared tonight might have a little bit of irreverence to it, um, but I, I hope the levity um, in way infuses and reminds your heart of um, what we're really up to here that we're, we're nurturing these qualities of core self, becoming more rooted in these qualities of core self so that we're able to face the challenges of the winds of the world. And I don't need to put too fine a point on this right now, but we are witnessing multiple ways, terrifying worldly winds not just what the Buddha referred to as, you know, praise and blame and success and failure, pleasure. We're, we're witnessing tremendous atrocity, crimes against humanity, social upheaval, and as I try to mention, environmental devastation. And these issues, again, to borrow from my mentor, Jack, my conviction, this is just my hypothesis, but I, if you're, sent, if you're um, open to it, I should say, my, my sense is that to really address these problems, these, these horrible problems, if we're going to survive as a species, we need to evolve or transform our consciousness from reactivity reactivity born out of a perception of separation and transform that consciousness into the realization of core self-consciousness, which again is imbued with these very wholesome, skillful qualities that promote harmony and peace. Okay, I know that story was a little bit irreverent for many 
folks. Maybe the, it might not be quite your taste, or maybe it is exactly your taste. And you're like, wow, I'm so glad to hear a spiritual story with such a um, irreverent but deep, joyful uh, kind of vibe to it. Um, anyway, again, if you'd like to practice with me and Terry, please do check us out at the Riverbird Sangha. We're uh, one practice that's awakening the heart-mind, one practice with many forms, primarily yin yoga, qigong, and meditation. If you'd like support in your practice, uh, to feel presence in a uh, loose online community, meaning loose and distributed throughout the world, but a very warm uh, yin yoga, qigong, and meditation-based community to um, transform our own hearts and minds to support a wise, compassionate engagement with the very, very troubling um, developments and flames of the world. So thank you again for your practice. Take good care. Stay safe. Keep practicing. And I'll see you in the next episode. <laughs>